And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Sustainability Story. I'm Deborah Kidd, Director with the Global Industry Standards Team at CFA Institute. And I'm so pleased to have with me today James Alexander, the Chief Executive at UK SIF. James joined UK SIF in October 2020 with a strong vision to mandate and to enhance the organization's key role in promoting and expanding sustainable investment and finance in the UK. James has a background in international climate finance and infrastructure finance, as well as many years' experience in leadership roles in membership organizations. Most recently, James supported global megacities to overcome the substantial barriers to financing climate action as director of the City Finance Program at the C40's Cities Climate Leadership Group and head of the C40's City Finance Facility. James has also worked on international climate finance issues at the UN level and supported cities across the world to invest their pensions and reserves more sustainably. James is treasurer of EuroCIF, the European Sustainable Investment Forum, a member of the Green Technical Advisory Group, providing advice to the UK government on implementing a UK green taxonomy, and he's a member of the Disclosures and Labels Advisory Group. DLAG, providing advice to the UK Financial Conduct Authority on the UK's Sustainable Disclosure Regulation and Fund Labeling Regime. James is also chair of the Global Sustainable Investment Alliance, the GSIA. So James, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. No worries at all. And sorry, it's such a long intro. I need to maybe give up taking on some of these new roles. But uh, but yeah, there's a lot, a lot going on. And it's great to be part of the global work to enhance sustainability in finance. And definitely an awful lot is happening in this. There is. There is a lot. And we have a lot to talk about today. There's been a lot going on in sustainable disclosures and regulation. But before we get started, we always like to ask our guests how they got started in sustainable investing and what led you on your path to where you are today? And how did you become interested in this field? Yeah, so I guess I've been uh, working on sustainability issues. I did a lot of work on education uh, when I left university and, uh, and started working for an organization called the Scottish Council for Development and Industry. I was uh, studied in Scotland and uh, lived in Scotland after I graduated. And we started doing a lot of work on, on cities policy in Scotland and thinking about what is it the cities can do to create and, and work together to collaborate on a sustainable future. And so we, I helped to author the city strategy for Scotland. I um, helped set up a new organization called the Scottish Cities Alliance. And that got me into the sort of city space. And, and, you know, we were thinking about looking at it from the context of 
sustainable economic prosperity and the role that cities can play in, in working together to do that. And of course, that then led me to C40, which is a network of the biggest cities of the world working to cut their emissions and become more resilient to the effects of climate change. Mega cities have got you know really specific challenges that the other cities just don't have. Um, and so we, we you know, brought together London, New York, Johannesburg, Beijing, Tokyo, and other you know huge cities from across the world looking to figure out how to uh, how to move forwards on sustainability. And my job there was to help cities pay for it, figure out the financing. And started off with a, a relatively, well, actually, it's, I can say a small team. It was actually just me and built that up to a team of about 25 of us and also created a new project preparation facility. And um, I was, you know, really excited to, to, to get funding from the UK, from Germany, from the United States governments to move this forward. And that's actually still going where the program of the C40 Cities Finance Facility is currently structuring a billion dollars worth of infrastructure. And the problem it's trying to solve is that cities um, know what they want to do. They've got a big vision. Often the mayor is really kind of passionate about becoming more sustainable. Um, but figuring out how to pay for that and uh, and how to structure that into a transaction is often beyond the capacity and capability of many cities, particularly in developing countries. Um, and so this project is all about doing that. Um, and, and, you know, I, I suppose... After seven years at C40, I, I wanted a new challenge, and uh, leading UK CIF was where I where I got to, and uh, it's it's been a phenomenal journey over the last three years at UK CIF. Um, we've grown the organisation massively. We now got uh, almost double the number of members, uh, triple the the income. We have doubled the size of the team from one from, from four and a half people to now eleven people, and I, I really feel that our influence is being felt much more widely than it than it was before, and um, not least through our expanded events program, but also our work that we're doing both with regulators and with um, policymakers and politicians to advance sustainable finance in the UK. So yeah, things are things are on the up and it's a, it's a really exciting time actually. Yeah, that's a lot of um, exciting successes in, in such a short period of time too. And I know you're celebrating a particular one most recently with passing of the UK Financial Conduct Authority Sustainable Disclosure requirements. So can you tell us uh, about that and why that is so important for investors? Absolutely. So yeah, we've been working on this for, I would say, more than two years now. I've been part of the FCA's Disclosures and Labels Advisory Group, which has been a really exciting process. Basically, the FCA decided that they wanted to structure these regs but to do so in such a way that involved industry and had industry, you know, right around the table from day one, advising on how to and how to do this in the best possible way. And that's exactly the the, the sort of space that UK SIF sits. We want to advance sustainability in finance. We want to see a sustainable finance system. We want to achieve the, the the net zero goals and the wider sustainable development goals. But we also want to do so in a way that actually works and and that's workable for industry and that and that makes best use of what of what the financial services industry can offer. And that's the that's the role and advice that we play. And um, and so the uh, SDR process was was no different. And 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 just you know for background, the SDR is fundamentally the UK's um, I suppose version of the EU's SFDR. And one of the actually one of the earlier questions that we were asked by the FCA when they were really thinking big picture was. You know, should should the UK just adopt the SFDR? You know, is that is that something that we should do in the UK? And uh, you know, the group thought about it at length, and and I think what we ultimately concluded was that ordinarily, regulatory alignment is a good thing, and it's you know what we should all be striving for, and we should you know be working towards this, but it shouldn't come at all costs. And and the SFDR 
you know, as a framework, and I think the European Commission would be quite open about this, is not working quite the way that it intended. Um, in fact, of course, the European Commission's got a consultation out at the moment to, to make some substantial changes to SFDR. Um, but, you know, the idea of Article 6, 8, and 9, which are the, you know, the three different categories that funds uh, can be uh, you know, approved into, has become de facto labels in a way that I think the uh, the FCA, uh, the, uh, the the European Commission hadn't expected. Um, and we wanted to avoid that mistake in, in the UK. And so from the word go, the whole point of this uh, SDR uh, process was not just a fund disclosure regime, but also a fund labeling system for sustainable funds in the UK. And um, the FCA was always very adamant that this was about enhancing consumer protection uh, and making sure that when consumers got a product or invested into an investment product that was that had some sort of sort of suggestion that it was aligned to sustainability in some way that that product actually did match that and it, and it and it met that criteria and that's really important for the entire industry and we are seeing i think globally a maturing of the sustainable finance industry and so in this sense what we see in the uk is um trying to create and protect consumers but to do so in a way that 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 ensures the integrity of this entire sustainable finance industry. So in future, now that these labels have been launched, when a, when a consumer sees a product that is labeled as sustainable, they know that that has some regulated sustainability characteristics within it. And um, in fact, there's three different, four different, now four different types of label that, that they can apply to it. And there were three, there's a, a fourth one's been added in the final version of the rules, which is something we pushed for and um, in our response. And we're really pleased to see that that's happening. Um, so the, the, the four different types of labels are sustainability focus, which is actually, let me just pause there for saying, because I want to go up one level because every fund that's labeled sustainable needs to have a non-financial objective. And that non-financial objective means that it has to have some positive impact on people and or the environment. Um, and so when you take that down, reason why I pause for a second, because, um, you know, the sustainability focus while, uh, label is for, for assets that meet that sustainable, that non-financial objective. So for example, if your non-financial objective was to have a positive impact on uh, climate change, you might be investing in, I don't know, a company that manufactures wind turbines or a solar panel array or some sort of other emissions reducing or emissions negative energy source. The uh, next label is called um, sustainable improvers. Now this, uh, for those of us in the industry and think of the jargon, we talk about transition. We talk about transition a lot. I, I think I probably say the word transition, you know, multiple times every day, but the FCA did some really interesting consumer research and looked at, you know, the public at large. Um, and it was concluded that nobody in real life actually knows what the word transition means. Um, and so the, uh, which is a really interesting insight for all of us in the industry that, that, that happily talk about transition all day, every day. Actually, a lot of our customers might not know what we're talking about. Um, so anyway, so this has been called sustainable improvers. And that, what that means is it's for assets that are not currently at the level of meeting the non-financial objective of the fund, but have the potential to get there, particularly through investor stewardship. And this is a, a really important label from as far as we're concerned, because it's all about making sure that, the, uh, that, that we are using our ability as asset owners and asset managers to have that positive impact on the economy um, in relation to that non-financial objective. The third type is sustainable impact. And that's uh, kind of impact investing products. Uh, and the FCA has done a bit more to clarify what that means in this in this sort of finalized iteration of the labels. And then the, the, the final one is the sort of multi-asset funds or blended strategies. They're calling it sustainability mixed goals. And that's for funds that are investing across multiple types of assets. Um, and so 
they might have investments, uh, you know, like a fund of funds in, in more than one different fund that's got a sustainable label. It therefore doesn't kind of fit under the other characteristics of the other labels and can't be sort of put in a box amongst only one label. Um, and so there's now that kind of mixed uh, approach, mixed strategy uh, label. So, you know, I think there's some really interesting stuff going on here. I think we are going to see a lot of, I think, a lot of potential con for consumer uptake of these funds. Um, and, and there's two reasons for that. The first is that we've done some consumer polling and we asked, you know, official, official polling through a polling company. And we asked over, I think, 2,000 people how they would like to reflect their values and their investments. And that's what this sustainability, sustainability labeling process is all about. It's about the ability of people to reflect their values and their investments. More than 40% of people responding to that poll said that they wanted to reflect their values on issues like climate change, human rights, working conditions, and wider kind of environmental and biodiversity issues in their investment. So potentially, that means there's a huge market. All of those retail consumers that are out there making investment, there's, I think, a, a massive market for, for, for these label products. And actually potentially quite niche label because the, uh, the, 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 the non-financial objective doesn't have to be something that we might think of like climate change. You could actually have, you know, you, you could set your own non-financial objective within a set of parameters. And so, for example, you could create a fund that's focused on gender diversity on boards of, of companies. And you could create a fund focused on uh, tackling modern day slavery and working conditions and workers' rights. You know, so it doesn't have to just be climate change. So you can create a fund that meets the needs of core groups of customers or retail investors as you see fit. And that's going to be really interesting to see. I think the second reason why there's going to be a big uptake of this is because this is really designed as a retail proposition at the moment. The FCA has written that they want to include institutional investors at some point in the future, and they're going to explore how to do that. But for now, we've spoken to a lot of the pension funds that are UKSIF members, and they are telling us that they're all very interested in these labels. And the reason why, you know, not surprisingly, is because at the end of every pension uh, fund, there's a whole bunch of pension investors, normal people like retail investors, that also want to see their values reflected in their pensions. And there are new campaigns like Make My Money Matter and other things that are raising awareness that where people invest their pension can have an impact on their overall, uh, you know, as, as much of an impact on the way that the world moves forwards as any other change that they make in their lifestyles. Um, and so our pension funds that we work with are getting all day, every day, post bags full of their um, savers asking to see how their funds are invested and, and whether it's sustainable. So we have we see a scenario that the, the, the pension funds as institutional investors are going to be starting to, to put their funds into these sustainably label products too. That reminds me um, of a, a trust study that we did at CFA Institute in 2020, where we surveyed retail and institutional investors, and we asked them um, if they were interested in investing in sustainable or ESG products. And it was somewhere about uh, 70 to 75% were interested, but of those who were actually invested, that number was quite low in the realm of 18 to 20%. And we attributed that gap to a kind of a lack of understanding on the investor part of what the products actually were doing and what's actually in the products. So you know, people don't tend to buy what they don't or invest in what they don't understand. So I can see how this labeling scheme could be extremely helpful to investors. Yeah, I completely, I completely agree with you. And I think one of the things that I think is so positive about this is the fact that it's led by the regulator. 
you know, this is not an industry-led thing. This is not something that that might be, you know, argued is perhaps biased or, or, or has another agenda. This is led by the regulator whose job at the very top level is to protect consumers. And that's what they're doing with these labels. Um, and I think it's going to, you know, they, they, they don't even have an objective of trying to increase the amount of money being, you know, put into these sort of funds. That's not the objective. The objective purely is to protect consumers and to make sure. And, and yeah, and on some levels, it makes a lot of sense. If you, if you were buying food and you looked at the list of ingredients and, you know, you would expect that that list of ingredients is an accurate representation of what's in the food product. You know, you'd assume that there's some law around that. Why should it be any different for, for other things on the market like songs? Um, so, you know, that's, that's, I think, a, key, a really key part of this um, is to give the people the confidence. Of course, you know, when, when 70% of people say they want to reflect, you know, they want to invest in a certain way, the numbers that are actually going to do that is likely to be lower. But I think over time, people are getting more and more clear, clued up that how they invest does have an impact on the on the world around them. And that includes their pensions as well. So I think it's an exciting moment for, for sustainable finance. And I think people are really realizing the power that finance can have. And I think that, that these sorts of products help to unlock that. Yeah. So this has been a milestone year for disclosure regulations and standards with the issuance of the ISSB sustainability-related, climate-related disclosures uh, standards the European Sustainable Reporting Standards, the new California legislation on mandating climate-related and risks and greenhouse gas emission disclosures, and this SDR investor protection regulation. What do you see next on the horizon as what should be the, like, the next most important thing? These are all geared at improving transparency and information for investors. Um, also some double materiality um, objectives with the European standards, um, but these are all very different. So if you're looking kind of over the long term and maybe the near term, what would the next most helpful steps in industry regulation and standards be for investors? I think it's amazing when you start listing it out like that, how much has changed and how much has moved forward, just even in a short time. Um, and ISSB, I think, is a real game changer. You know, it takes it takes the international framework from the organization that does the international accounting standards um, and applies these to sustainability reporting. And that is so crucial for investment. You know, if we don't have the decision useful information that we need to be able to make decisions and incorporate consideration of particularly of sustainability risks into investment decisions, then we're not being able to factor in the full range of risks into investment. And that's a really big problem. And so corporate disclosures, I think, is is one of the really big areas that we need to, to now move forward. We've got the framework in ISSB and the UK is looking closely at uh, uh, embedding that. And um, we've got a committee that's being formed to figure out how to codify the ISSB framework into UK law. And I and I think ministers are quite positive about doing that. I want them to move faster, but uh, but as ever. And um, I think Japan has publicly said that they're going to move forward with this and other countries are doing the same. So I can see the ISSB framework having a huge impact. I guess what we want to see next is this to be applied globally. Uh, you know, we need this corporate reporting data. In the UK, we're looking at transition plans as well, being incorporated as part of that. Um, and so we've had over the last year and a half or so, a group called the Transition Plan Task Force tried to develop what would be a gold standard for a corporate transition plan. And again, 
the hope being that there'll be a compiler explained basis for companies to to be required to bring that in and to have their own transition plan as part of their ISSB reporting. Um, again, we want to see this consistently applied globally. You know, there's no reason why a company based in one country shouldn't be able shouldn't do things when another one uh, should. Um, and it's important for investors. Many of our investors are investing globally. This is the information they need to to, to do that successfully. So I think that's going to be another, uh, you know, next big part of this is embedding a lot of these frameworks that have been developed. Um, in terms of where ISSB could go next, obviously, won't have escaped anyone's attention that nature and biodiversity have been, uh, you know, really elevated up the priority list. I think there's a growing realization that tackling climate change without tackling the huge sort of nature challenges uh, is, is, you know, missing half of the challenge that we're trying to address. Um, and so we can see a scenario for TNFD and um, the task force on nature-related international disclosures um, being incorporated into a further iteration of the ISSB framework, maybe an S3 categorization. And we'd like to see that rolled out soon. Again, I can see the UK government wanting to be a, a, a fast mover on this. Um, and maybe the UK can be can be the leader. We were one of the leaders on, on setting net zero goals into legislation. We were one of the leaders on getting TCFD disclosures. TNFD, I think, is, is a logical next step for that. And that maybe just brings me on, if you may, Deborah, to some of the work I'm doing on the, in the international level with GSIA. We just we just put out a series of policy recommendations to the international community. Uh, there were four recommendations. One of them was exactly on this, on data. Um, and it was all about enhancing corporate disclosures um, and doing that in a standardized way by embedding ISSB frameworks across the world. Um, the second one was, again, what I just mentioned, building the TNFD framework into the next iteration of ISSB. The other two policy recommendations, I think, are equally important. One is around trying to determine and figure out a framework for harmonizing sustainability re uh, financial regulation across the world. So we have you know, members that, as I said, are investing globally. They're big global corporations, investors, and they are subject to so many different regulatory frameworks and systems. We want to see, are there mechanisms to harmonize those? Now, importantly, that does not mean taking a lowest common denominator approach. I'm not at all suggesting that we weaken the regulations. What I'm suggesting is that we figure out if, I don't know, say Canada and the UK are asking perhaps the same question of investors, um, uh, but asking it in three or four different formats and ways so that people have to respond very differently to each one. Well, can those questions be harmonized? That's the sort of thing I'm trying to, to figure out. And so we think there's a role for the G20 to play in convening some sort of regulatory alignment working group can look at this. And then the final of the four recommendations was um, it relates to GFANS. And now we have $150 trillion of global AUM has now um, committed to advance towards net zero as part of the GFANS framework that was agreed at the Glasgow COP, COP26. Um, I think it's that's an increase on the $130 trillion that was announced there. But of course, if all of that managed assets wanted to become net zero tomorrow, it just couldn't, you know, it couldn't, it couldn't do that because there is a lack of investment opportunities. And I think that's the next thing that we need to figure out is how do we create and, and who needs to work with us as, as an industry to create and develop investment opportunities that are net zero that some of this cheap funds um, uh, commitment can be moved into. And so I think there's a, a strong role there for national governments across the world to start, you know, thinking about, well, hang on, we now know that there is funds out there looking for a net zero home and if it can find it and if the risk profile works, how therefore do we do we help structure that and um, both in terms of corporates to invest in, but also perhaps in bricks and mortar infrastructure as well. Um, so that's I think the next the next piece of this puzzle is it's 
We can't just kind of say, right, job done, 150 trillion, that's going to be fine. We've got to say, well, hang on, how do we now mobilize that capital to move and move faster? You know, we always talk about pace and scale. The scale, at 150 trillion is about right. Now we need to increase the pace and make sure that that, that that money can get into the places where it can have an impact sooner. So I saw that the UK has a goal to be the world's first net zero aligned financial center. So do you see the UK taking a leading role in helping to solve these problems to um, to figure out how to mobilize this capital? Yeah, the UK has done a lot. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty proud of some of the things that the UK has achieved. COP26 was definitely a really high point in the UK's climate ambition. The challenge is the last couple of years, we've come off the boil. And I think we've let other countries move ahead of us. And and uh, not not least the United States with the Inflation Reduction Act has uh, you know skyrocketed ahead and moved forwards in a in a completely different way. That's taken you know a lot of a lot of people, a lot of policymakers around the world, but, but including here in the UK, by surprise with the speed and the scale of that of that program. And what we're now seeing is the scenario where the US could absolutely rally ahead of the rest of the world in terms of the investment to create and, and be the champion, the leader of the new industries for the sustainable economy that are going to be created. And so that includes things like battery plants and electric vehicle manufacture. It includes things like hydrogen. You know, here in Europe and the UK, we're looking at regulating around making these industries possible. In the US, they're saying, right, the problem is there's neither supply nor demand. Okay, so how do we create that as a government? Well, we have to subsidize one or the other. Right, fine. Let's subsidize, uh, subsidize supply and there we are in the US, there are people building hydrogen plants with no off-takers. Why? Because they can afford to do it under the subsidy from the Inflation Reduction Act. But what does that mean in the long term? Well, sooner or later, if you've got a pipe or a sign up outside your factory that says free hydrogen, come and get it, eventually you're going to create an ecosystem of industries around there to be the off-takers of that hydrogen. Um, and as the subsidy begins to taper down, you'll find ways of getting of monetizing because of course you you build you build the demand for that hydrogen um, and people start paying for it in, in, in a way that is commercially viable that's how you create these industries now the challenge we've got in the uk is twofold one i don't think we can afford to put in those level of subsidies um and so how are we going to make that possible and the second challenge is that even if we could afford them i'm not sure that the taking the us approach where conceivably every part of the the economy can be a winner um, is going to be viable for a country the size of the UK. So we have to make some really hard decisions. You know, what areas of the economy do we want to be the world leader in? You know, and there's several answers to that. But we kind of need to pick winners. That's really hard to do politically. My view certainly is that one of the winners we should pick is that we should be the undisputed world leader in sustainable finance here in the UK. We should be financing the world's transition. We should be supporting every country in the world through the expertise that we have here in the UK on, on sustainable finance. That should be definitely one part of it. And um, I think one of the other you know, really big challenges is how do we, um, without subsidizing, create the UK as a really good place to invest and, uh, and make sure that we are in a scenario where the UK is comparably as good a place to invest as the US, even without subsidies. So what does that mean? We need to fix issues like planning. You know, We've got big challenges around how long it takes to get planning consents um, how hard it is, who has to be involved, what the timeline is going to be, what the likelihood of success is, you know, that needs to be streamlined. Uh, we've got issues around grid connections. If you want to build a renewable energy project here, um, the chances are it will take you a couple of years to build. 
but maybe 10 or 15 years to get connected to the to the electricity grid you know that that stops a transaction in its tracks so how do we move that forward to so we, again how do we become a comparatively better place to invest even without subsidies in the us we can do it but it's going to take a really concerted effort across government across industry across investment community to make that yeah that's really fascinating and lots of complexity there it sounds like you you though have quite the background in addressing these kinds of issues. So it'll be exciting to see where UK SIF, I guess, turns its attention over the next few years and how you support the UK government and and influence them in making those decisions. I did want to... Yeah, for sure. I, mean, if you, well, I was just going to say, we've got, we've got an election coming up next year. So that is a core, a core priority for us is, you know, any party that will listen to us, we want to work with to help make sure that they understand some of the issues here. They understand the role that financial services can play. Crucially, they understand what role we can't play. Um, you know, you can't just outsource everything about the sustainability transition to financial services and think it's going to go to plan. You know, government has to play a key role too. But, you know, so th- these are what we want to we want to put forward. You know, any party coming in that wants to, that wants to be the next government, um, what is it that we want to see? What is it we want to see from government? What is it we can do? Um, and how can we use that to both, you know, create the sustainable future, but also create a thriving, growing economy at the same time? That's that's the that's the, the challenge that we're or the circle we're trying to square at the moment. And uh, I think I think you know I think we'll get there. And um, and then beyond that, we're thinking deeply about systems change. You know, what is a sustainable finance system? How do we get there? What why do we want to be a sustainable finance system? What will it achieve for us? So this is part of our work coming up over the next uh, the next year or two. Well, we are almost at time, but I do have one more question for you. I would uh, I want I want to go back to your global sustainable investment review report, uh, and I would be I think remiss if I didn't mention the uh, collaboration among CFA Institute GSIA and the PRI in developing some common industry definitions for terminology that's been kind of used in many different ways throughout the years related to ESG and sustainable investing. And uh, I think that's another form of investor information and disclosure in a way. I wondered if you might talk a few minutes about that and what you know that could mean for sustainable investors. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad you raised that. It's been really great to work with you and your colleagues at the CFA Institute um, as part of this kind of global network of SIFs. And then just so, just in case people don't know, so GSIA we're the the uh, global collaboration of, of SIFs across the world, and so there's uh, organisations like like UK SIF right across Europe, including EuroSIF as an umbrella, uh, but also in the US, in Canada, in Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and elsewhere. And we've been working together. Um, with PRI and, and, and CFA Institute, as you said, to, to develop a sort of common set of definitions. Um, and the reason why we've done this is because we know that across the world, there's lots of different people using different terminology to mean slightly different things in this space. And we thought, hang on, can we come together and try and streamline some of this? And so to start with, uh, we put together five definitions um, uh, that we think are going to be also are some of the the things that that are most nebulous but that need to be pinned down if we're to move forwards effectively as an industry um and those definitions are first of all screening um we define screening as the application of rules based on defined criteria that determine whether an investment is permissible um and then of course you can you can go down into more detail on sort of positive screening negative screening 
Um, but we wanted to put that top line definition of, of screening. Then there's ESG integration, which we define as the ongoing consideration of ESG factors within an investment analysis and decision-making process with the aim to improve risk-adjusted returns. Um, so that's why we would integrate ESG into decision-making to improve risk-adjusted returns. That's now what we've incorporated as, as, the, as the definition. Um, thematic investing is selecting assets to access specified trends. Stewardship is the use of investor rights and influence to protect and enhance overall long-term value for clients and beneficiaries, including, this is important, including the common economic, social, and environmental assets on which their interests depend. And that sort of links to this concept of sort of broader, higher-level stewardship or macro stewardship. And then the final definition is impact investing. And here we, we base this on the Global Impact Investing Network's definition of impact investments. Um, and so we define that as investing with the intention to generate a positive, measurable social and or environmental impact alongside a financial return. And so those are the five definitions that we've come up with. It's really exciting because they're actually being used already. And uh, we talked earlier in this podcast about the UK FCA and their um, work on the sustainability labels. The report, the final report, incorporates these definitions and so then that which is amazing so they're now being used in in uk regulation and i know that other countries around the world are looking closely at this too we've shared them with uh iosco we've shared them you know at a high level with with, with many other organizations and so you know we are hopeful that this becomes part of the standards um around which this whole industry develops and matures and having a sort of agreed set of definitions is so important and you know i definitely want to pay tribute to to colleagues from cfa institute particularly Chris Fiddler, who've done an awful lot of work to, to develop these definitions and really push this project forward. So yeah, really exciting to see. Um, obviously, they'll be available on the CFA website. They're also on the GSIA website. If you go to the drop down and click definitions, they're up there. And actually, I'm encouraging some of the other SIFs around the world to put them on their website. So you'll also find these definitions on the UK SIF website too and uh, and elsewhere. And so yeah, it's been a, it's been a fantastic project. And I, I think it, it will have a really positive impact on the industry as we as we move forwards and become uh, more mature and that's actually a final point to end on maybe is the global sustainable investment review which you did just mention and it's published every two years and we've just published it um, and it's trying to piece together what the size and nature of the global sustainable investment market is the headline number is that the uh, the market is 30 trillion dollars of AUM is now in some sort of sustainability related on product um, which is obviously a huge amount of money um, we have seen that number, the headline number appears to have dropped, except it hasn't dropped. It's just been measured. Um, and particularly in, in the US, where we've seen a change in methodology, which is all about the industry maturing. It's about how we measure things that's actually having a positive benefit and impact rather than just having a kind of label or sort of calling itself sustainable. So we've, we've had a very interesting time launching this report, trying to make sure that nuance gets in there. But again, that's all on the GSA website. I definitely encourage people to take a look. The last version, incidentally, got downloaded 160,000 times. So uh, there is definite interest in, in using and sort of seeing this data and understanding this. It also, if you're interested, has a really nice set of chapters on the sustainable regulation and regulatory developments in the key markets around the world. So there's um, like three page summaries on every market in the world, which are well worth taking a look at too. So uh, yeah, huge amount going on at the GSI level. And we're really excited to be able to do more to raise the voice of sustainable finance at the global level. This really has been a fantastic year for investor wins and sustainable disclosures. I'm excited to see your next report. I know it's still a couple of years away, but 
I'm excited to see how using those common industry terms defined in now in a universal way kind of will inform and impact the reporting. I think it maybe should make your life easier there. I definitely hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know investors will absolutely appreciate that. There have been so many funds that use those terms in so many different ways. And, you know, this is just really another great gift to the industry. So, well, we are at time. James, I really wanted to thank you for being here with me today. Uh, it's been really a pleasure to talk with you. And I look forward to seeing what you're going to be doing in, in the next year or two. Thank, yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And happy to come on and share and share what we get up to next. Look forward to speaking to you soon. Absolutely. We'd love to have you back. Thank you.